As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We've kind of had money in the cloud since the Middle Ages, basically. And the only innovation was actually deposit insurance. Your money was in the cloud if you were a Venetian merchant in like 1000. You get on the ship and yeah, here's your money. Here's your two-factor authentication. Um, and there you are. Right. Um, you arrive in Constantinople, <laughs> you hand the money over, you hand the letter of credit, they give you a sack of gold. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. We're back with another dispatch from the West Coast, where we take you behind the scenes and inside the minds of some of the top people in tech. We have a most excellent show for you today, and it's going to be a little different. I sat down with Benedict Evans, who's a partner at the venture capital giant Andreessen Horowitz. And many of you know him probably through his very popular weekly newsletter, which has something like 90,000 subscribers and counting. So rather than the typical format, I thought I'd try a slightly altered tack with Benedict, given his vast knowledge across a whole range of subjects. So I came up with five big questions, just five about different themes in technology, and then just let it take us where it took us. It was a lot of fun, so hopefully you really dig it. And um, before we get started, just due to some technical issues, my first question got a bit garbled. So I'll just tell you what I asked him. I told Benedict that I have a 17-month-old son, Cole, and asked if by the time Cole turns 16, which is the official driving age in California, whether he will need or even be able to get a driver's license. In other words, how long before self-driving cars do to the dumb vehicles of today what the first automobiles did to the horse and buggy all those years ago, relegating them to the scrap heap of history? Here's what he said. The simple answer is there will be, it will be possible to live without a driving license then. I think the more interesting answer is that it probably won't be binary. It's kind of the same today. So if you live in central London, so I didn't get my driving license until I was in my 30s. And there's a sort of a heat map here. So there's areas where you don't need a driving license. There's areas where you probably need one. There's areas where you definitely need one. And then there's areas where the family has a car, areas where the family might have two cars, areas where you definitely have two cars and you drive a lot. And what I think autonomy will do is it will sort of shift those zones outwards. So the places where and the kind of the circumstances where you don't need a car will grow. And if you are running a farm in rural Idaho, you will still own a vehicle. It might drive itself when you leave your property and go on to the six lane highway. But I think you will have many more situations and many more kind of lifestyles and places you can live where you don't need a car at all at that point. So level five will be here in 15 years, you think? Well, so again, I... Th- and level five, obviously, th- just I th- so as no I, steering wheel. As I sort of think about this, I feel like, like, well, level five where? 
For example, you could imagine what in America would be called a garbage truck and what in Britain would be called a, a dust truck or dust lorry, I forget. Now. Lorry. A lorry, lorry yes. yes. You could imagine that thing driving itself down the road at three miles an hour following the crew as they grab the, the rubbish from people's houses. And then when you get to the end of the road, the crew get back on board and drive it to the depot. So is that level five? Because you could build that now. Something that can drive through Naples and work out what that hand gesture is telling you to do to your relatives, well, that's a bit <laughs> further away. So I th again, I there are, clearly there are binaries. Like, can you sit in the back of the car or do you have to be sitting in the driving seat with your hands three inches away from the steering wheel ready to take over? So there are kind of binary breakpoints there. Is there a steering wheel always out or not? There'll probably always be like an emergency backup manual control under a panel somewhere, like a joystick or a forward-backwards button, just so you can like get it into a garage or something. But I just think this, we tend to talk about this stuff as though, well, on, it's like Skynet, you know, on December 22nd, 2023, the yeah. first level the five event. car. Yeah. And it won't be like that. It will be kind of much fuzzier, I think. So you could imagine, you know, my rubbish truck example, you could imagine cities being autonomy only at weekends or autonomy only between 11 o'clock and 5 o'clock in the morning. You could, well, imagine there's a lot roads, of a you could imagine certain roads being autonomy only yeah. or freeways being autonomy only. It's a little bit like what happened to horses. You know, you can, you can still drive, ride a horse around London if you want to, um, but you can't ride it on a motorway. Because there's a lot of talk about what autonomy will do to cities, for example, and potentially recreate those, obviously, which is very interesting given that most of the world is, lives in cities or is moving to cities. But sounds like that may be a bit further out. Well, it's sort of, again, it kind of depends. There's an end point of a world where almost all the vehicles are autonomous or where you can declare that that road or that city is autonomy only. And then you get a whole bunch of benefits you don't have in a mixed environment. So, for example, you can have a major traffic junction that doesn't have traffic lights and the road cars just thread each other's paths going across the junction. You can have cars driving at 100 miles an hour, two feet apart from each other without having collisions. You can get rid of lanes on motorways, for example. You can even get rid, not just the lanes on each side, you could get rid of the lanes entirely and just have the whole the whole space being a single mixed environment of these cars, a single environment of autonomous pods moving back and forth at whatever speed you want. So there's those kinds of sort of nirvana cases. Then there's a whole bunch of kind of mixed environment cases. So for example, as you start having even level three systems become universal in cars, the accident rate starts going down. So if my car will never run into the back of somebody, but your, your if my car will never shunt someone, but your car will, well, the accident rate is still going to go down. So you get a lot of those kinds of benefits in a mixed environment. You get benefits with things like on-street parking. Maybe you don't have cars parked down both sides of the road. You only have past cars parked on one side of the road. So there's a bunch of kind of mixed questions. But yes, the sort of the blue sky futurological stuff does tend to sort of assume no manual drivers on the road. And so there are questions about how might you achieve that in kind of limited circumstances as I said so a park and ride system yeah. or a motorway that's only autonomy at certain times. Yeah because it's hard to conceive of that now because the roads are just this kind of cacophony of human drivers everybody kind of it's a bit crazy. It is but then if you go and look at films of roads before the first world war it's kind of the same you know no vehicle is going above walking much above walking pace and there's not really any lanes. I mean, when it gets very busy, there are lanes. But basically, vehicles feel free to take whatever position on the road they want to. And you have people walking walking in amongst the traffic all the time. And it's not really a problem. 
So one of the things that happens when the first motor cars appear is people are very upset by the, how fast these things go. That they're driving at these ridiculous speeds of 20 or 30 miles an hour, and it's dangerous. And the brakes aren't very good, and people aren't really paying attention. And they're, they're kind of, there's lots of Mr. Toads everywhere going kind of boop, boop, and, and whizzing off down the road. And lots of, there are lots of people getting killed. So there was that transition we had before, and the end point of that transition was, well, you can ride a horse, and you know, if there's a horse on the road, everyone goes, oh, my God, there's a horse, and slows ways down and gives it lots of room. But you're not allowed to ride it on a motorway. And you'll have that, that on a, like a 50-year view or a 20-year view or right. 30, whatever you think. You will reach a point where almost all vehicles are autonomous or can be autonomous, and we won't really think – we'll kind of forget about these questions. But there is a long transitional period in the middle where you get some of these benefits but not all of them, and you have all sorts of kind of frictional questions about, well, you know, if my car goes off and parks somewhere else to wait for me, how much traffic does that generate? And is that better than me driving around the block 15 times looking for parking? And is it better? If you have no on-street parking in Soho and all the cars go and wait in Vauxhall, what does that mean? Do you have more traffic or less traffic? Well, you certainly got different traffic. So 15 years from now, he we live in San Francisco. Yes. He probably won't need one. You don't argue. Well, you kind of don't need one now. Arguably, but, uh, well, this is my point. Arguably, yeah. you don't need a car in San Francisco now. Yeah. And so what will happen is that equation, you know, you sit and you think, well, do I need a car? And then you've got a bunch of reasons pro and a bunch of reasons con. What will happen is that conversation will just change. And there'll be many more people over time. More and more people will think, okay, I don't need a driving license. And more and more people will think I don't need to own a car. Okay. Question two to cryptocurrencies. Do you think it is inevitable that the fiat currencies, say the dollar, the pound, as we know it, will eventually be supplanted by cryptocurrencies? I'm not sure which one it would be or which ones it would be, but how do you see that evolving? Because right now it's, where I think we're at 1,500 plus cryptocurrencies and more every day and tons of scams and it's hard to figure out what what is real and where this is going so a lot of the conversation around this stuff now reminds me of the conversation around the internet in the early 1990s when people were saying there'll be no more distance communications will be possible and you'll be able to talk to anyone anytime and access information from anywhere which was all true and all sounded like nonsense and people were saying there'll be no more wars because people will understand all of their neighbors and there'll, there'll be no more misunderstandings and people were saying that while the bosnian war was going on when people who lived next door to people all their lives were killing each other which, so it was a kind of a really weird way for people to talk about this stuff you have this kind of mix of kind of wild-eyed utopian stuff, some of which actually turns out to happen and a lot of which doesn't. And the stuff that predicts kind of fundamental changes in human behavior and fundamental changes in economics, fundamental like macro, basic macroeconomic principles, that stuff tends not to happen. The stuff that says, well, there were a bunch of ways we did things that were predicated not on fundamental human nature and fundamental macroeconomic principles, but on the particular technology we happened to have, and now we have a different technology, those things can change quite dramatically. So, you know, back to the sort of the early internet, you know, the talking point people used to say was that it used to be that the internet got traveled, carried over the telecoms network, and now telecoms gets carried over the internet. And that's kind of true. I mean, particularly if you're, you know, if you're using any kind of messaging app, you know, that is basically what telecoms was. And if you're doing any kind of voice calls, so that's now going over the internet. So the telecoms is happening over the internet. And so that, you know, 20 years ago, that sounded ludicrous. Now it's just, well, of course, I've got 300 messaging apps on my phone and they're all free. Why would that even be an issue? You know, when I was working for a telco in 10, 15 years ago, that was the apocalypse. You know, Skype was the apocalypse. And now, like, yeah, whatever, who cares? And so you've got that sort of mix of some of this utopian stuff will happen, some of it will not. 
And there's a sort of a generalized point there, which is that kind of wild, early, crazy tech tends to be taken up by wild, crazy people because no one else would be interested. And over time, kind of the wild craziness gets kind of turns into reality and some of it happens and some of it doesn't. Are we going to change our currency models fundamentally over the next 20 years? I think just because you can issue a currency doesn't mean that you will. I see a lot of people sort of reinventing the gold standard without actually understanding why the gold standard wasn't necessarily a great idea. The great thing about inventing things from first principles is that you can do stuff that people who knew all about them wouldn't have thought of. And so, if, again, if you go back to the way people in telecoms and tech were thinking about what was become the internet, remember people talking about the information superhighway back in the early 90s? They were both kind of old enough. And it was going to be on your TV. British Telecom and Deutsche Telekom and Bell Labs and the New York Times and News Corporation would decide what was going to be on there. And there'd be like a committee that would decide what the, new, what the services were going to be. And they'd meet like once every two years. And, of course, that wasn't how it happened. <laughs> See, there's a little bit of that sort of analogue now of people kind of trying to work out what this would be and not really knowing what it would be. But yes, the kind of the thing I was saying is like when you don't know any, how about anything about how this stuff works, sometimes you just create stuff that is never going to work because you don't understand. But sometimes because you don't know it was impossible, you create it. And again, we're at these sort of very early stages of what this could happen. And so, yes, you've got people kind of reinventing the gold standard without knowing that that's what they're doing. You've got people talking about Bitcoin with rhetoric that is basically the way people talk about the gold standard. It's, oh, it's fantastic. The government can't, de- can't inflate and deflate anymore. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> there's a reason why we want the government. You actually want inflate, deflation, inflationary currency is a kind of a good thing. And so there's a bunch of that sort of stuff. But at the same time, we have this fundamentally transformative technology that enables a bunch of things that you couldn't do before. It's a little bit as though someone had invented packet networking in a world with no networks, so to speak, or with no computer networks. And everyone's kind of sitting there looking at this stuff and thinking, well, circuit switching is 100% reliable and it works really well, and we don't really know what these packet things would be for, and we don't really understand why this would be a good thing, but it seems like it might be interesting. And you've got the telco saying, that's a stupid idea. You've got the computer networks guy saying, no, 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 it's great, and it's going to completely transform everything. But the reality of what that looks like and, like, whether it's going to be Ethernet or ATM or IP or what the interrelation between those different levels are is completely unclear, I think. So do you have a sense of, for lack of a better word, what the killer app might be for blockchain? The no, one thing... This is very early 1990s. Yes, I know. What's I'm going all the way back. For, what's the I'm killer app for the back. internet? <laughs> it turns out the internet was a killer app, killer, yeah. killer app for the internet. So I've got the bane of my life when I was a telecoms analyst in like 1999, 2000, people asking me what the killer app for 3G was. It, they're like, what is the killer app for having the internet on your pocket anywhere you go? Well, actually, the killer, That's it. that is the killer that app. That is it, right. What will the use cases for this be? I think we're just starting to see what those would be. Yeah. And it's some combination of the fact that it's distributed and not centralized and the fact that it's programmable. And so the fact that these individual little items, so to speak, I mean, you take your gold coins and take them to a bank and get banknotes and that we've that's basically putting money into the cloud, and we did that in like 1700 or 1650, or maybe if you go back to kind of letters of credit, we did it in the Middle Ages. So we've kind of had money in the cloud since the Middle Ages, basically. And the only innovation was actually deposit insurance. Your money was in the cloud if you were a Venetian merchant in like 1000. You get on the ship, and yeah, here's your money. Here's your two-factor authentication. Um, and there you are. Right. Um, you arrive in Constantinople, <laughs> you hand the money over, you hand the letter of credit, they give you a sack of gold. It was great. But the thing is, the gold, the money, the underlying units didn't change. It was still like a unit of record. 
um, whether it was a pound or a ducat or a dollar or, whatever, or a, a deed to a piece of property, whatever it was, that underlying unit wasn't touchable. It was just a thing. It was just a one or a zero. And kind of part of the interesting stuff about kind of Bitcoin technologies is partly the distributed stuff, but the other is that each of those individual units, the, the coupons or tokens or mm-hmm. the Bitcoins, so to speak, are actually changeable and programmable and can interact on each other. So like the really simple use case or sort of illustration that people sometimes give is that you could build an escrow system that doesn't need a solicitor sitting on the money. And the system itself can say, well, once you've transferred the deed from that account to that account, this other set of assets move from that account to this account and it's programmable and mechanistic and it doesn't rely on you paying somebody to do that for you. So we'd get rid of solicitors in house transactions. That would be fantastic. Uh, well, yeah, it depends whether you're in, in New York, whether in the States or in the UK. Yeah. Um, now, that's just an illustration. Yeah. Now, when you then take that into the real world, it may turn out that there's a bunch of other reasons why you like having a solicitor and they don't actually charge you very much anyway. And, you know, you may or may not actually get any value from doing that. Another use case that people offer that often comes up is using this for music rights. And this sounds fantastic until you actually go and talk to people in the music industry and they're like, you do understand that half of our contracts are blotched faxes from 75 years ago, well, you know, 50 years ago, 25 years ago. And, and the problem is not that we're not accurately doing what we're supposed to be doing. The problem is we don't have a clue what we've actually got and we have to get together in a meeting every meeting room every six months with people from another label and we go, go well, we think we overpaid you for this, but we also think we underpaid you for that. And they go, oh, that's interesting because right. we thought we've got this other thing yeah. and and so you have people kind of moving stuff back and forth I had this fantastic um, experience when I worked for a, a um, big media company there was a big kids TV show from the 80s that hadn't been turned into a movie when all the other ones had and I asked my colleagues well why haven't we made a movie of this and the answer was well we think that CBS have got the rights and CBS are adamant that ABC have got the rights and ABC no no no, no we don't have the rights to that it's you guys so it wasn't people were claiming they had the rights, people were claiming they didn't have the rights. And so like, yeah, that's not actually a blockchain problem. Question three. So looking at the big four tech companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, are we reaching the limits of what algorithms can do? You know, because if you look at Facebook, the fake news, all that kind of problem, and they've said we're going to hire 10,000 people to basically help police this thing because it's so big and cacophonous. And you have YouTube, I think it's 400 hours is uploaded every minute or yeah. something. It's just, these things are becoming so big that they seem to be struggling to manage with just the code alone. So there's an interesting narrative here, which is a lot of the kind of criticism that comes of these companies from outside has been along the lines of, it would be really easy for them to do that, and the only reason they're not is they're making money from it. And it turns out, actually, it's not easy. It's not just a switch you can flip that says, get rid of this, and they have to hire 10,000 people to watch you look at all the posts and read all the stuff. I actually had an argument with a, a leader writer from one of the UK newspapers about this. He said, well, if they can remove copyright content, they can remove jihadi content. Well, one of those is a database lookup. It's really easy. The other of them is somebody who speaks Arabic watching this for 15 minutes and working out what the guy's theological view is. And that's why you get to this situation where you actually have to hire a bunch of people. There are things that are really easy for a computer to do and things that are not easy for a computer to do. And part of the interesting kind of transition of machine learning is machine learning has been sort of addressing things that hitherto were completely impossible for a computer but trivially easy for a five-year-old. 
I mean, you can give a picture of a cat and a dog to a five-year-old and say, which is a cat and which is a dog? And the five-year-old will get it right like 98% of the time. And until about five years ago, the computer would go, I have no clue. And you would look at it and you think, well, okay, that's easy. It's easy. Why can't you do that? And the computers just couldn't do that. Uh, Mark Andreessen has this, this term for this, which is sort of nerd harder. <laughs> right, which is when a sort of politician or a journalist kind of comes along and says, well, you should be able to do that. And the computer scientists or the technology company are like, well, it's all very well for you to say we should be able to do that. It doesn't mean we can do that. And so I think you've got a kind of a combination of some of those kind of issues, both within those companies and also within the kind of public discussion of them, like the, what is actually hard and what is not hard and what requires them to hire 10,000 people to sort, to sort that out. And And by extension, there are some things where you say, actually you'd have to hire like 10 million people. So you either make a decision, you're just not going to have that anymore, or you accept that there's going to be some stuff there that you don't like. I mean, it reminds me a little bit, again, I'm going to sound old now, which is of the sort of conversations about there is pornography on the internet Mm. in like the mid-1990s. And there was a period in time where a lot of people were absolutely adamant that quote-unquote the tech companies, whatever that meant, whether that was ISPs or whoever, was going to have to somehow remove the porn from the internet. Eventually, we sort of worked out that that was a little bit like saying there are things you're not allowed to say on the telephone, that you can't actually ask British Telecom to determine what people do and do not say on the telephone, and you're just going to have to live with the fact that criminals use the telephone too. You have a mechanism for bugging the phone, but you don't just say, well, the, the following topics cannot be talked about on the phone. Sort it out, nerd harder. You just accepted right. you couldn't do that. And that's sort of where we got to with pornography. And I think as we look at these kinds of questions today for Facebook, for Google, for YouTube, to some extent for Twitter, we're kind of working out in public how we think about those, where we think the responsibility is, what topics we think are fundamentally solvable, which things we think, well, we're just going to not have that anymore, or we're going to turn that off because it got too bad. I mean, at a very small scale, there are products, social products that basically went shut themselves down because they couldn't deal with the bullying problem. And so instead and of... On Twitter, didn't you just it, kind of cut off your comments recently just because it's such a cesspool? Yeah, exactly. You know I, I, you know, I say X or Y and I have 500 people shouting, shut up, you asshole. And it's like, well, there's not really any value to this. And so I turn off comments. So, you know, I, I now only see from a kind of a... I basically see comments from people who follow me or who I follow. There are sort of certain points where you say, okay, we can't solve that with automation. We hire people. We can't solve that with people. We live with it. Or we can't solve that. We'll stop doing that. We can't do this without, and you kind of, for each of these things, you have a sort of a set of conversations around, well, how do we deal with that? And I think we're going through that conversation now, particularly around Facebook. I mean, this is a slightly more technical point. I think we have very unresolved feelings about the newsfeed. So, what do you mean? So, for example, we accept absolutely that our bank knows how much money we have. Yeah. Because that's what it is. Yeah. We accept, what, yeah. we also kind of accept that our mobile phone company knows where we are. Because yeah. that's how it works. And there's a bunch of legal controls around like what they do with that. and you have they're to get pinging the towers and et cetera. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, like, yeah. that's how this technology works. Mm-hmm. The tower has to know where you are in order to connect a call. And so we accept that with a bunch of limitations and restrictions around what the phone company can do with that. We also kind of accept that if you do a search on Google for X or Y, it will show you results for X or Y, because that's what you typed in. And we have a bunch of things that we think should not show up in those results or should not have advertising, and Google does those. And then there's a bunch of places where that fails. But we basically accept in principle that if you search for X, you should see that. I think we don't quite have a kind of a, a settled view of how we think about the newsfeed. There's a sort of a basic problem. So when I got married, 
my wife, future wife and I said, there's no way we're going to have one of these huge weddings with hundreds of people. We'll just have close friends and family. And then you write down the list and you go, oh, and wow. it gets very big. And then you're like, well, if I don't invite them, they're going to be pissed. And then, oh, And so you get be, to, yeah. I think we had like 75 people on the yeah. wedding, which is actually still quite a small yeah, wedding. It's very good. easy to get yeah. to like 150 people. Yeah. So why do I mention this? The average Facebook user is eligible to see 1,500 to 2,000 items a day. That's what, do you, what do you mean is eligible to see? If you saw everything, you, that's what you would get. On all, your On page. your own page. So okay. all the things that someone, all the photos they've posted, all the things they've clicked live con, all the comments they've made, all the status updates, all the location check-ins that they've made, everything that you they have explicitly done on Facebook, that's what the news feed is. It's you see everything that your friends do on Facebook. Okay, how many friends do you have on Facebook? Well, how many people do you invite to your wedding? You have 50, 100, 150, 200. This is Dunbar's number. It's yeah. 100, say it's 150 people. Say it's 200 people. Those 200 people do 10 to 15 things a day. You post two or three photos, you click on something, you comment on something, you share a story on The Guardian or The Times. Guess what? There's 1,500 items in your newsfeed today. So what do you do with that? Well, you, and so this is when people say they want a chronological feed. It's insane. If you had a chronological feed, you would just open Facebook and it would show you 1,500 items listed in historical order from the moment that any random person you've ever friended had clicked on it. So it, would be, it wouldn't actually be chronological. It would be completely random. So, and of course, you'd never look at it all. You look at the last 150 things. And so people say, well, like my cousin died or my friend got married and I didn't see it. Okay, well, you still wouldn't have seen it in a chronological feed because it would have been item 842. Right. And you'd have scrolled to 600. So you still wouldn't have seen it. So then you think, well, maybe Facebook should like say, well, I know that person and that looks important. And that's my close friend. And that's somebody I've never seen. So we should sort it and organize it and show the stuff that's probably important. And hey, presto, you've got an algorithmic feed. And then you think, well, why am I seeing this story about Nazis? Well, it is because your uncle shared it and five of your friends clicked like on it. And how do we think about that and what should Facebook do with that? And again, I think this is sort of this is what I'm sort of getting to is we have like a resolved understanding of Google that if I search for Nazis, I'll see Nazis. And we don't quite have the same sort of sense of resolution around, well, why am I seeing the stuff in my feed? But there's also the advertising on top of that, isn't there? Exactly. Well, there's the advertising as well. And Especially when it becomes political and it's kind of, you can, if you pay, you can put some yeah. pretty nefarious stuff in somebody's newsfeed. Exactly. I mean, and then, so then the question is, well, so should Facebook have been deciding who was going to be allowed to advertise? And the answer to that is, well, yes, probably, but about what? Until, say, 18 months ago, any suggestion that Facebook was making conscious decisions about what got shared or who would advertise mm. or what you'd, you'd see, you'd see in your newsfeed was evil. You could have lined up 20 professors to tell you that this was terrible and destructive and was killing the internet. 18 months ago to the day, suddenly the idea that Facebook is not editing and not making any of these decisions becomes equally evil. We have this Facebook thing, which is whatever percentage of people's time online, and it's it sort of got to that point and got to the point that it sucked in all sorts of other activity without anyone really sort of working out what that was going to mean or what that would feel like. I think our feeling about that is sort of unresolved within Facebook. Um, well, clearly, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg seems to be wrestling with that, with the changes to the news feed yeah. and what it shows, et cetera. So then there's a the question, okay, so you can remove all ads about politics. Okay, how do you decide whether that's an ad about politics or not? you can remove all news. Okay, let's see how newspapers feel about you know, news no longer being shared on Facebook. I don't think they'd be terribly happy about that. You can say, I only see stuff shared by my friends. Well, yeah, that's what it is. Your uncle is posting that news feed. Well, what do you do? Do you unfriend him? 
That's like saying, well, do you not go to Thanksgiving dinner? There were questions in here that have straightforward, easy answers. And there were places where people simply spammed Facebook or hacked Facebook, you know, took yeah. advantage of things yeah. that it didn't, was never envisaged people would use it to do. But there's also a bunch of behaviors in there where it's not necessarily obvious what the answer would be. It kind of begs the question of how is this resolvable? The knee jerk is break Facebook up, whatever that even means. I think that's nonsensical because it doesn't mean anything. It's not like there's a bunch of separate components here that you can pull apart. Yes, you could pull off Instagram and WhatsApp theoretically, but that wouldn't affect the newsfeed at all. You could even pull off Messenger, but that again, that wouldn't affect the newsfeed. And the newsfeed is basically all anybody's actually thinking about. And there's only one newsfeed. You can't like split it up into different, different companies. Someone on Twitter made the absolutely insane suggestion to me that it should be broken up regionally. So like, if you're in, if you're in California, you should be on the California Facebook. And if Calif- you're in New York, Facebook, you California. should be on the New York right. Facebook. And like, well, hang on a second. So how do I talk to my friends in New York? Am I supposed to like go and create an account on the New York one? So then we talk about regulation. Well, well, okay, well, what would that be? As I said, it's, it's a lot easier to talk about the problems than to work out what the answers to the solutions Yeah, to, I feel, uh, to your point, because I feel like that's where we what we've right. done is we've aggregated the behavior of two billion people. Then we've kind of sat and looked at it and thought, oh, we didn't know that was going to happen. It feels like we're still pretty far from the answers. I think, we, yes, I think we are at the point that we've understand there are sort of fundamental things in here that we have to try and understand better and deal with. I don't think we've kind of quite worked out what the answers to those would be. I don't think breaking up makes sense. I don't, carrying on I don't understand what the separate components would be, yeah. just from a kind of a purely mechanistic sense. I don't I know you, what you would actually do. Yeah. Um, there's an awful lot of people talking about regulation now. Again, yes, you can regulate anything. Okay, what would we do exactly? Let's try and work out what that would mean. And I think we're at the kind of the very early stages of those conversations. Question four. Yep. Automation. So AI is taking over the world. We're all going to be put out of a job and be on universal basic income very soon, depending on what you read I could see I could see your reaction but that is the kind of the the popular perception okay. around the march of the machines yep. quote unquote so I think at a very high level there's two teleologies here one is people have been saying this since 1800 and there are always new jobs and you don't necessarily know what the new jobs are. In fact, you probably never know what the new jobs are. And yet somehow we've gone from 90% of the population being employed in agriculture to 3 or 4%, and yet everybody else got a job. And none of those jobs are things that anybody in 1800 or 1900 or 1920 or 1950 or 1970 could have predicted. And that process just continues. And there is a degree to which people get irritated by that because they're basically saying, you're telling me there are new jobs, but you're not going to tell me what they are. The problem is that's just been an observable pattern for the last 200 years, so you're going to need to come up with a theory to tell me why this pattern is going to break. Human needs are infinite. Human desires are infinite. So that's one answer. The countervailing narrative here is that what we've been doing is automating progressively higher and higher level brain functions. So you start in the 19th century... As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Basically, with automating human beings as beasts of burden. And when you automate away human beings as beasts of burden, they don't go off and get other jobs as different kinds of beasts of burden. They have to get jobs with their hands, so to speak. And then you automate away kind of hitting stuff with sledgehammers, and that becomes skilled labor, and that process kind of continues. And so by extension, the sort of the whole thing of deindustrialization that we all learned, how to, learned about you know, as teenagers at school, heavy industry went away. You didn't move, get jobs in new heavy industry. You got jobs in light industry. And light industry goes away, and you get jobs in services, and, and, and so on. Those sort of processes continue. And so the argument would be, well, okay, we'll automate away the call center, and so all the people in call center jobs won't have jobs, and so what jobs are they going to get? And they're not going to get jobs as copywriters at ad agencies or something, because they just. And so you reach a point where there's nothing left to automate, and there's nowhere for. So to speak, let me put it another way. The argument is the jobs kind of flee up the stack to higher and higher level capabilities, and you're going to reach a point where you've automated all higher level capabilities, and there's nothing left. So those are the two arguments, basically. Mm-hmm. The problem with the second argument is we're a very, very, very long way away from actually automating all human capability. So what we're... Well, that's, uh, the, but that's the interesting thing, though, right, is that the progression of machine learning is progressing almost exponentially. Well, so... Is ex- not? Okay, so... So there's two answers to that. One of them, even if it was, the most aggressive people working on machine learning, we would say we are... 20 or 30 years away from what's called general intelligence, which is something that can... So right now what we have with machine learning is basically you have a washing machine. You know, it's not a domestic robot. It can't walk around the house doing the housework and make... You don't have Rosie from the Jetsons yet. No, you have a washing machine and it doesn't know what water is or clothes are. You just put stuff in and press a button and it does it. That's what machine learning is now. It's just it's a washing machine for picture recognition or a washing machine for sentiment analysis or a washing machine for voice recognition or something, but it only does that one thing. And so general intelligence is that it would be sort of Rosie from the Jetsons or whatever. It would be like the the, the, the actual humanoid robot that could actually understand stuff and respond as, to As someone uh, termed it to me, it would be humanity's last invention. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. <laughs> so anyway, the most super aggressive people uh-huh. there think that that is 20 years away. Many more people would say 50 or 60 or 70 years away. And, and we're not going to do it by accident. It's a bit like looking at aircraft in 1905 and saying, well, how long is it going to be before these things can go into orbit? And there's two answers to that. One is, okay, these are the things you would need to be able to do, and that's decades away, and we don't know how we would do it. The other is, we're really not going to do that by mistake. Like, we're not going to put put a 20-horsepower engine on this plane instead of a 10-horsepower engine, and oops, accidentally it went into orbit. Like, that's not how it works. So we'll know about this coming. The questions are, I think, this sense of, I think if you push a little bit back into what's happened with computers, 
which is, for example, in your industry, you know, we kind of automated away a whole bunch of manual processes. Yes. Before the internet came along, there were just as many people working in newspapers, or probably more than there were in you know, the economic model change. But the shift of newspapers to computers did not result in, you know, a, a massive collapse in the number of people working in computers. The same thing in an office. If you, we'd been in this, you know, if you'd been in a, a large office. 40 years ago, you have individual offices around the edge of the floor, and the middle of the floor is filled with hundreds of people sitting typing where typewriters. You had a typing pool. You know, tell this to the young people of today. They have no idea what a typing pool was. I've never seen one. You see them in movies. You go and watch 9 to 5 or something, or um, um, Working Girl, and there's these typing pools. And what the hell is a typing pool? All those jobs went away. Guess what? All those people got other jobs and generally better jobs. I suppose what I'm getting at is that machine learning will automate particular white-collar jobs. It won't automate away layers of white-collar jobs. We don't know. But I think those are the kind of the questions that one thinks about. I personally think the idea that in like 10 years' time, there will be 30% middle class unemployment and everybody will be out of work is just kind of ludicrous. An example I often give here is to, if you go and watch The Apartment, a Billy Wilder film from 1960, Jack Lemmon is a clerk in an insurance company. And there's these great kind of long shots of him on the floor in this office building in Midtown Manhattan. Everybody's got like a one-person desk. They're all in kind of long rows. And everybody has a typewriter and a Rolodex and an electromechanical adding machine. And so everybody you see in that building is basically a cell in a spreadsheet. They're all doing one discrete calculation and giving the answer off to somebody else. The building's basically an Excel file. And sometime in the 60s, they bought a mainframe. They threw away all the electromechanical adding machines. And all those jobs went away. But people still have jobs in insurance. People yeah. still have jobs. Middle, they're still middle-class jobs. So these people got other jobs. All those jobs changed. That's probably, it's a hard question. But if you think about what Elon Musk says, and it's like this Pollyanna-ish, we are summoning the demon, quote-unquote. This is the beginning of the end of humanity. Well, this comes, I mean, so this comes back to my point about aviation. It is as though a brilliant rail, railway engineer looks at an aircraft in 1910 and says, my God, these things are going higher and higher and faster and faster. It's going to go into orbit by accident. And you don't understand it's going to go into orbit. And the aircraft engineers are sitting there thinking, A, we don't actually know if it's theoretically possible to go into orbit. It might be, but we don't actually know. Presuming for the sake of argument it is, you will not get there with wooden canvas wings and a 10-horsepower engine. Turned out, not only did you need aluminium and pressurized aircraft and a whole bunch of other stuff, actually even jets weren't good enough and you needed a rocket. And even now, like, how many people have been into orbit? And it turned out to be incredibly difficult and expensive. And you certainly, you know, you're not going to get into a plane on the next time you, go, you, you fly and worry that it'll accidentally go to the wrong height. And so I think that's kind of the point here, that we're building these, these kind of single-purpose systems. Again, this is my washing machine analogy. You know, washing machine is not as suddenly, you're not going to one day going to make a washing machine that can walk around with that and start doing the dishes and do your laundry without them realizing that it was going to be able to do that. They've made a washing machine. Yeah. So everybody just set, settle down, basically. Question five, last one. The next big interface, we went from PCs to mobiles. Obviously, there's, I think, three billion plus. Yeah, three to three and a half billion smartphones on Earth now. Yeah. Probably five billion mobile phones. Probably three, three and a half billion smartphones. What's the dot, dot, dot? I mean, do we still have a long way to go with smartphones and what they're able to do? Or is it voice? Or is it the smart home? Where, the next big so thing. So again, I, I mentioned two tiers. I'll give, I'll give sort of... So there is a teleology here around tech innovation, which is that the new thing has so much greater scale than the old thing that it crushes it. So if you think about what PCs did to mini computers and mainframes, PCs started off much less capable than them. But their volume was so much greater 
and therefore the economies of scale were so much greater that all the innovation shifted into PCs, and over the next 10, 15 years, PCs got so much more powerful that they came and they killed Sun and they killed Silicon Graphics. N- nobody buys a half-million-dollar server box from Sun anymore. It's all commodity PCs. Same thing happens with smartphones. To start with, original smartphones in the early 2000s from Nokia and Palm and so on were, you know, couldn't remotely compete with the PC. But the, by the time we get, we get to today, the volume of smartphones is so much greater that all the innovation has basically sucked, been sucked from the PC industry into the smartphone industry. So like last year, I think 270 million PCs were sold and one and a half billion smartphones. And so is that different? Wow. Yes. It's also it's a replacement cycle issue because PCs last seven, six, seven years and smartphones yeah. last 18 months to two years or maybe three years. So yeah, one and a half billion PCs sold last year and about 270, sorry, one and a half billion smartphones and about 260, 270 million PCs were sold last year. So all the innovation has moved. The reason I mention this is there's not like a next step because smartphones are everybody. So there's not like another market you can go to that's that much bigger that will pull all the innovation into it. So that's sort of one question. Of like This has been the process for the last 40 years. That process is sort of done. You can't repeat that. So what are the candidates for what comes after multi-touch, which is the way we interact with our smartphones and our tablets? Clearly there's voice around at the moment. I'm probably in a minority in being on the sceptical side on voice. Mm. Why? I think what we see with voice, and again, this is partly machine learning, is when you ask Alexa or Siri or Google something, there's three things that are happening. The first is a machine learning system takes the audio waveforms and turns it into text. The second thing that happens is what's called natural language processing takes that text and works out what this is and works out where the verbs and the nouns are and turns it into structure. And then the third thing that happens is that structured query gets acted on and responded to. So in effect, what you're ha- what's happening is you're using voice to fill in a dialogue box. And what voice lets you do is you can say, my address is this, and my credit card number is this. And it looks at the page and says, oh, okay, and it finds the page and it puts all the stuff in the right places and hits submit. Somebody has to write the page. And what we don't have in any sense is a way automatically to generate all more of those dialogue boxes, all more of those abilities to answer questions. So I can ask Siri, uh, how long does it fly, take to fly from San Francisco to Las Vegas? And last time I tried it, Siri gave me the how long it would take to drive because nobody at Apple has written that specific question. I can ask Google and they will tell me because somebody at Google sat down one afternoon and wrote that. That question. That actual question. And they worked out, someone will probably ask that, so let's write that bit. So all of those bits are written by hand, one at a time, because that's how it works. Sometimes, for example, what Google will do is it will try and look for a search result and redo the first search result. So you can say, and of course, where it's Wikipedia, that's great because Wikipedia gives you those kind of questions. But very often you ask Google or Alexa or Siri something and it'll say, here's what I found on the web. But it doesn't know what that is. It has no understanding whatsoever of what that web page is. It's just done a web search. It's the same as if you do a Google search. There's not like a little guy sitting inside your PC. And we have no way to scale that. And so what you're seeing in effect with Alexa or Google Home or Siri is an IVR. You dial a phone number and it says, press one for this, press two for that, press three for this. What we now have because of machine learning is you can build one of those that will work perfectly every time, but somebody still has to write every single branch by hand. It's still very crude. Yeah, so it doesn't scale. Where you know what you can ask and where people know what you're going to ask, you can build a great system. Do you have to get to a point where you can actually build cognition, effectively general AI? So this is sort of my feeling is that there's kind of a U-shaped curve here, that if one of these things can answer 
three or four questions, that works really well. If it can answer to 300 questions, that's a catastrophe, because how am I supposed to remember the 300 I can ask, as opposed to the 5 billion other questions I might ask that it can't do? And then the curve kind of goes up at the end when you have general AI and you actually have HAL 9000 and you can ask it anything. And that's great, but, well, unless, unless it kills us all, but no. <laughs> well, things were peps or something. But the point is that's like 50 years away. Right. And so it's not that, like, Alexa is great now and give it another two years and it'll be perfect. There's not like a curve for it to be able to answer anything you might for it to be able. It's to just going to be a bit less crappy. In yes, it's not like the iPhone where the iPhone launches and it's a bit crap and it doesn't have apps and it doesn't have 3G, but it gets those. And if you looked at the original iPhone and you didn't understand, it would get those things. You were you were missing the point. Alexa is not like that. It's not that we're two or three years away from it being able to answer anything. We're two or three decades or two or three centuries away from it being, it being, it being able to answer anything. And therefore, I think it's a fantastic product in a niche. But it doesn't become like your general purpose computing product for everything. What else might be next? Things like cars and smart home. Those are sort of specific things. It's not like they replace, you know, their businesses, but they don't kind of replace what is your day-to-day computing device, what is your day-to-day device for interacting with the world and talking to your friends. You're not going to go down and get into your car. You're not going to you know, have Facebook Messenger on your thermostat, so to speak. The stuff that I think is a potential candidate is when we look so if I can put on something that looks like a pair of reading glasses and I can see your last three stories floating over your head or your Tinder profile or your grinder profile, like depending on, on what's appropriate, yeah. um, or your assets under management, or you know, I, I had a, gave a talk to some people from some three-letter agencies in D.C. and I said, well, that guy would be blacked out because he's redacted and I'm not allowed to know he's here. Right, right, and right, so right. Uh, you wear a pair of glasses, you have a display technology, which means it can actually play stuff in the world so it looks like it's there. Then you have a bunch of sensors that can map the world and recognize people. You have a inter- very fast internet connection. You have a bunch of machine learning systems that can do face recognition and can work out context and work out what I should be seeing here. Those are also like engineering problems now, not mm. science problems. Okay. Five years ago, that would have been total yeah. science fiction. Today, like, we know what we would do in order to be able to do those things. And it's not a science problem anymore. It's just it's engineering. Right. And so that, to me, is sort of potentially the next thing. Like, I can imagine in... 15 years, everybody has a little smartwatch that's your always-on display and you have a pair of reading glasses. And you put the reading glasses on, and now that whole wall is a screen, or this whole table is Minecraft. And you don't really need the phone. The interim stage is probably the phone is providing the computing, and it's connecting to the glasses, which is just the display and the sensors. But in the long term, perhaps that might be the next thing. Yeah. But that's sort of, to me, much more interesting than voice, also kind of more interesting than VR um, as a, like a billion yeah. scale thing. Now, again, there are some people who think that VR and MR will merge and you'll have the same pair of glasses and it will kind of go opaque and then you'll be in the, 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 uh, the alternate world or it will go transparent and then you'll just see like a little icon hovering over somebody that says you forgot to talk to them or whatever it is. I tend to think those are two different devices, but you know, I, who knows, we'll see. Right. But in generality, I think the thing that can play stuff into the world as you live it is more interesting than the thing that places you into another world if you're sitting at home on the sofa by yourself. Right. To be able to pull that off, does that necessarily mean the next big tech company is already one of the big tech companies? If you think about the the smartwatch, the best company to make a smartwatch with this sort of super integrated, tightly controlled electronics is clearly Apple. The best company to light it up, like to give you ambient information and know what you want to see when you look at it is probably Google. And this is kind of the kind of great disappointment of smartwatches that Google didn't really manage to make good smartwatches and Apple, the hardware at all. And Apple hasn't really managed to produce incredibly. I mean, there's a bunch of, there's say, 50 or 60 million people who have an Apple watch and they really like it. But, you know, we don't have Google now. Google now didn't work. We don't have Google now on the watch. And so that hasn't quite gelled the way it might have done. 
Again, with glasses, you could propose the best company to make that is Apple and the best company to light it up is Google. We have an investment in Magic Leap, which is building both the primary display technology. They basically solved the science problem. Apple might have solved the science problem as well. We'll find out. Apple, there's lots of smoke signals coming out of Cupertino that indicate that they're clearly working on stuff like this. But then there's kind of all sorts of questions around, well, what's the scale of this and how is it sold and who is actually providing that, that, that stuff that happens on your device? Like, do you install a LinkedIn app and a Salesforce app on your phone or like, how is that working and what's the developer ecosystem around it? How do you take it to market? So it's a little bit like talking about multi-touch in like 2004 or five. It's like, here's this amazing science project. You have the demo. You think, oh my God, this is going to change your world. Yeah, but it still comes in three packing cases. Yeah. You've got to work out what that would even be. So we don't know. Well, I think there's a bunch of stuff you can say directionally. Like you can yeah. say, I could imagine a billion people or two billion people having this. It's like being in 2000 and saying, what will the smartphone ecosystem look like? Well, there's some stuff you could have said, but you wouldn't have got in-app purchasing for Candy Crush. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. And that is it. Hope you came away with a couple nuggets of insight. I know I did. I wanted to thank Benedict for taking the time. Thank you for listening, as always. And I'm going to make my plea, as I always do. Rate, review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Please just take a moment if you haven't already. And I'm also writing this week on a couple different um, big tech themes, so do check it out in the Sunday Times. You can also find it online at thetimes.co.uk. I'm also on Twitter at Danny Fortson. And email me. Th- uh, let me know what you thought of the podcast or the, the kind of the different format, whether you'd like to see me repeat it. Any feedback is welcome. I'm at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Till next week. See you. Bye-bye.